The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Uh, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. This is Privacy Piracy. I'm the engineer for this show, and your host is Mari Frank. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney, privacy consultant, and is the author of several books, including Safeguard, Your Identity, it's a personal privacy audit, and From Victim to Victor, which is a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as, as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. You may have also seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, and NBC, ABC News, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. She's even had a 90-minute PBS special, which aired last year, and they show it from time to time, so you can look for it. It's called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about our show, Privacy Piracy, and the guests that we have, please visit KUCI.org Privacy Piracy. So let's get started. Hi, Mari. Hi there. We have a great show tonight. We have a wonderful privacy expert coming to us all the way from New York. So uh, it's three hours later for him. So we're really thrilled that he's here to join us on Drive Time. Let me tell you a little bit about Alan Chappelle Lloyd. You and I met him in Tucson. Remember, we went to the Poneman Institute when there was a privacy uh, seminar that we went to. That's right. And we got to meet Alan, and that was terrific. Alan happens to be um, a fellow with the Poneman Institute, and they do research on privacy issues. And remember, we've had Larry Poneman on a couple times on this show, so that's uh, really terrific. Um, Chappell and Associates, he's CEO of Chappell and Associates and is headed by, by Alan, who happens to be an attorney. In 1997, he founded the privacy program at Jupiter Research, which is an Internet research firm focusing on consumer Internet economy. And during those years at Jupiter, he also directed their marketing, sales, and compliance operations. And so there's a real balance here between privacy and marketing, and, and what is the rights of the, the, the businesses and what are the rights of the consumers. After his tenure at Jupiter, uh, Alan helped uh, productize DoubleClick's research product suite. He focused on DoubleClick's advertising effectiveness products, which measured the brand impact of online advertising. He also worked with other email marketing firms, helping clients with issues of privacy and deliverability. There were some issues with, with privacy with DoubleClick, but they've really, you know, tried to um, deal with those so that people would feel more comfortable with them. Uh, Alan Chappell also founded uh, Chappell & Associates in, 19, in 2003, and since then he's worked with a lot of top-tier organizations. He helps them to comply with existing privacy legislation. He helps audit their privacy practices and manages their technology product development programs. And he was recently asked by Congresswoman Bono to provide input and additional verbiage for H.R. 2929, which is the SPY Act. 
and he's a regular contributor to the iMedia Connection, the DM, uh, DMN, the DM News, Direct Marketing News, and the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And he happens to be a certified uh, privacy professional by the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And I'm a member of that too, good organization. So we're really thrilled that you know we can have Alan join us tonight. Alan, are, are you there? I don't hear Alan, so hopefully he's there. Yep, I'm, I'm here. How oh, are you, Mari? Okay, great. I thought I lost you for a minute. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from New York. How's your weather tonight? You know, it's actually not so bad for uh, for January in New York City. It's probably about 35, 40 degrees, and, you know, we can live with that. Hey, you know what? It was almost sad here. I mean, it was when it gets down to 50, it's real cold here for us. So oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, we, we actually had that. We've had uh, some storms, and today was beautiful, but, boy, it was really rough the last few days. So, Alan, I'm, I'm so excited that you could join us. Why don't you tell us what made you get into the issue of privacy and become a privacy professional? Well, well thanks, Mari. And, and, and first, let me thank you for, uh, for allowing me to be a guest on your show. I, I consider it to be a great honor. Oh, great. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, but, you know, a couple of things in, in, my, in my career really uh, uh, directed me in the direction of privacy. You know, back in the early 90s, I, I was working at a small direct marketing company. Uh, we were doing uh, printing and mailings for a whole bunch of different kinds of businesses. And one of the businesses that had just come to uh, Fairfield County was a large international bank. And what we were trying to do is, uh, you know, try to help them drum up some business and make sure that everybody knew, you know, that, that, you know, that this bank was coming to town. And as part of that was it was a huge direct mail campaign. And in order to do that, we obtained some lists from the bank. Right. And these lists came on data tapes. And they included, you know, names, social security numbers, bank account ah. numbers. Uh, <laughs> you probably heard this story before. Uh, it, you know, it, it included bank balances, all this stuff. And these were for people who had, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and in many instances millions of dollars. Mm. And, uh, you know, those tapes were, were given to, to me without anybody really asking me any questions. Uh, they sat in a warehouse where anybody, any one of 50 employees of this small direct marketing company uh, could have taken them and run them through the computer and found out, you know, any or all of those names. Mm. And, and social fact, security. I'm willing to bet you that somewhere in that direct marketing company's uh, storeroom, those tapes are still there. Ah. And it, it, and, and it, it started to, you know, it started to kind of uh, trigger a couple of things in my head because I thought, well, wow, what happens if somebody does do something that's, you know, that, that's nefarious with, with that data? So we move a couple of years ahead of my career, and I just started at this uh, young, hip Internet research company called Jupiter. And I was helping run their, you know, their marketing operations, and they were a very heavily direct mail-driven company. And without going into the entire story, they, they, their approach was kind of what they called guerrilla direct marketing. If you pepper somebody with enough direct mail pieces and enough telephone calls, uh, you know, you're going to increase your, your response rates and you're going to have more sales. Mm -hmm. But what they weren't looking at um, was the number of people that they were turning off by those types of methods. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it, was, uh, it was a challenge really from day one for, for myself and my team who, who really were the ones fielding or bearing the brunt of the, of the customer frustration o over some of those tactics. Uh, we, were, we were forced to kind of bear the brunt of that, and it was very difficult to get uh, senior management to really pay any attention to these types of issues. So, uh, you know, 
when I had uh, finished up, I spent about four and a half years in the Internet research world, uh, and uh, just at about that same time graduated from, uh, from Fordham Law here in New York and got into the email marketing space. And we're, we're finding some very similar issues. There was a, at that time, it was uh, just about you know, two and a half years ago, and there was a whole bunch of commotion around, oh, my goodness, they're going to regulate how, what we do with email. Right. And uh, so, uh, you know, you take those three, you know, areas or those three, you know, kind of life stories and you put them together. And I thought, well, you know, put, you know there are some real significant issues here. And it's not just about, well, what are we going to do to comply with this law? But it, but it really should be, you know, what can we do to increase the value of our customers? What can we do to, uh, you know, to enable them to have the relationship with us that we want to have? So I founded my company just about two years ago to the day. And uh, that, that's the type of advice that we provide to, uh, to companies. So, you know, I, I'm an attorney, and we can certainly provide the legal advice, and, and, and in many instances we do. But I think that our, our strength is more about, you know, how do you understand what your customer wants, and how do you figure out a way to give that to them? Right. So, so tell me, Ellen, in, in terms of privacy, you were talking about that no one really cared about it when you first started out and the fact that this direct marketing company had – social security numbers sitting out there and all sorts of other private information. So how do you explain to companies the importance of privacy in this information age in commerce? Well, it, that's a great question, and, and it really depends on who I'm talking to. If you're talking to a large online media company or a large publicly traded company, uh, you, you can talk about a couple of things. You can talk about uh, you can talk about brand devaluation. You can certainly talk about compliance to law. Um, but but if you're talking to a small to mid-sized company, say in New York's what they call Silicon Alley, where you've got a 50 or 75 person company and they're operating on venture capital money, um, you know, many of those organizations at least feel like they can operate under the scrutiny of. You know, they're certainly not going to be scrutinized as much as, say, a Microsoft or an AOL is going to be. Right, right. And so a lot of them uh, feel like, at least, that they can kind of uh, operate under the radar of some of, that, some of that scrutiny. So the challenge as a privacy professional oftentimes is to really find the levers in order to get, you know, to convince some of these organizations to, you know, quote, unquote, do the right thing. And a lot of that is just simply figuring out ways to build trust uh, within within the organization, and I'm not talking about the organization building trust with their customers. I'm saying, as a privacy professional, my job is to get them to trust me. Right, right. And when you can start to do that, that, that then that, then gradually the, the the other pieces can start to fall into place, and you can start to to, to point out, well, here is where the the emerging best practice standards are in this particular industry, and here's where you guys are. And, you know, the, the, further, the, the further away you are from what those emerging best practice standards are, you know, the less likely you're going to be able to get that second round of VC funding that you're looking for. Right. Or, you know, and you just try to find, and it, it, each situation is a little bit different, but a lot of times it's, it's, it's just finding, you know, the, the, the particular lever in any given situation and, then, and, and getting, the, uh, you know, getting the CEO of the company just to understand that, that this is what they need to do. Right. Alan, if, if you were talking like here we are in, in the middle of Orange County, which is, you know, pretty upscale county. Um, we're also on a university campus. They have privacy issues. You know, if you remember, you, know, you see Berkeley had privacy issues in which they've lost tapes. Unfortunately, um, we haven't had that problem right here at UCI. But, you know, the UC system has had problems. UC San Diego, 
Um, we have people who are driving home from work right now in Newport Beach, wealthy area. They have small companies. We have large companies. We have a little Silicon Alley here in Aliso Viejo. So if we're talking about maybe you could give some of the elements of a quality privacy program maybe at the, you know, uh, small, medium, and large level or can, can you talk about some of the elements that maybe apply to all of them that, that you look for in a quality privacy program that affects the, uh, the company? Yeah, I, I think that the, the first thing that, that you're going to need to have is a, this at a senior level buy-in. And it depends on the organization, but, you know, you want to have the CEO, the CEO or the president or the board of regents. So you, you want to have, have some kind of direct line into that person or that group. Um, because without that kind of influence, it's going to be very difficult for you to have, you know, to be able to uh, execute on whatever program that you're trying to, trying to put together. Um, you know, another key component in any type of privacy program is training. And this is where a lot of organizations fall short, and I can share with you a, a very quick story uh, that, that actually my, my mom and dad, who are living down in Florida, had shared with me. There's a very uh, old-school uh, offline brick-and-mortar retailer. And mom and dad decided it was time for them to get a new workbench. So they go down to this brick-and-mortar retailer, and they find the workbench that they like, and they go to the cash register to make the purchase, and the clerk says, okay, sir, I need your name and address. And my dad says, well, what do you need that for? And they say, well, just because the computer says that we need it. And they were paying cash? Yeah, he's saying cash. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he said, well, I don't really want to give you that information if you're just going to use it to bother me. And the, 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 the clerk had said, well, I, you know what, I really don't know. If, if you want to purchase this, you're going to have to give me your name and address. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it's kind of interesting that the, that the company policy kind of put, you know, getting somebody's name and address a, uh, over and above gaining a sale, which right. if you think about it is kind of perverse. Right. So, um, now, my dad did give them his name and address, and he got his workbench, but boy, at what cost? Now, it, now did your dad, I have, this, a, I have a question. Did your, oh, dad, did your sure. dad give them your telephone number? Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I talked know, to my I'll son you, about this. My dad's generation, <laughs> it is much more likely, and we see this with studies with, uh, with Poneman and some others, that, uh, th that my parents' generation is much more likely to give a, a uh, correct phone number and address whereas my generation is probably 25% less likely to get right. the correct. And I'd be willing to bet you that my daughter's generation is going to be, and actually some research already bears this out, that they're going to be much less likely to give the correct name and address. Right, right. But, but I think what my point, though, is, is that you can have a very uh, structured privacy program, but if it is not filtered down into you know, the, the people who are customer-facing, it, 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 it almost is not worth having one. Right. So even if the CEO or the president is into privacy, if there's no training at the lower level, it, it makes it's no good. Right. There's no quality. Yep. There's and it's uh, and you know this is this is in many instances a compliance issue, but boy, it sure is a uh, a marketing and customer retention issue. Now there's one silver lining to this whole thing, Mari, and I thought I'd share that with you. Is that after that experience, my my mom and dad finally know what I do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got that now. So now they respect it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Okay, so what advice would, would you give to, you know, there's a lot of people that are graduating seniors from here, ma you know, master's students here, and 
people in the community who are thinking of leaving their job and starting their own business, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's starting a new business with regard to privacy issues? Well, I, I think you know. I, I think this advice would probably would transcend uh, above privacy issues. But I think the, the best thing to do is a couple of things. First, you want to find out whatever trade association there is that that focuses on the particular area that you have interest in. Now, in my case, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the interview, the IAPP, the, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And uh, the first thing I did is I found out who are the top 50 people, either speakers or uh, people who write for or people on the board of the IAPP, and I sent them an email or called them up and said, can you give me 15 minutes and tell me what keeps you up at night? Hmm. And, I, you know, I think it's a great credit to the, to, the, to the privacy profession that almost every single one of them was willing to give me the 15 minutes. And this is, you know, CP, you know chief privacy officers at some pretty big companies. Right, right. And, you know, I, uh, in doing that, I got a really very quick and in-depth uh, take of the landscape. Uh, and the second thing that, that I think we were able to do is just find some places where you can write. You know, in, in, in the era of online and you know, online media magazines and blogs and all that stuff, find a venue that you can write frequently. And it almost doesn't matter if anybody reads it, because if you're writing every day on a topic that's of interest of you, you will always have something to say. And it'll come up on Yahoo and, and Google. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, anytime. it absolutely will, and I, I found that to be a great tool. But it's, it's, it's almost more important that, you know, when I go and talk to real smart people, such as yourself and everybody that was at the Poneman Retreat Weekend in Tucson a few months ago, uh, if you're constantly writing on these issues, you will always have something to say regarding, every comp uh, you know, re regarding any topic uh, in your area of interest. Right. And, you know, there's not enough people who are really writing about privacy issues. There really aren't. You know, you know what? It, 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 it's very interesting because there, there are a lot of very, very smart people covering privacy, but most of the people who are really smart and have been doing this for a couple of years are just so busy right now that I know, I know Larry writes uh, a little bit, but I, and I'm sure he'd like to write more, but, boy, there's just, there's just too much going on right now. Right, and, and we're seeing with the information age exploding that privacy comes up everywhere, you know, oh, absolutely. in the workplace. and in every single context. Right, when, when, when you're advising new businesses, you know, um, I was just talking to somebody at the Poneman Institute today, in fact, Virginia, who said that you were excited to come on the show, which I was glad about. <laughs> but, um, you know, we were talking about they're, they're going to have a, a phone seminar on privacy in the workplace. And I'm going to be interviewing somebody in, in the next few weeks on privacy in the workplace because even, even if you're a, a CEO or an employer of a small company, you have to think about what are the privacy issues if your internal customers besides your external customers. What kind of surveillance are you going to have? You know, what kind of email policies and um, video and audio po policies are you going to have with regard to the privacy of your own inside customers? You know, a lot of people go to work, they don't realize that they have absolutely no expectation of privacy on any of the machines that belong to the company. Yeah. And, and so that's a whole other issue about people. Even if you only have one employee or two employees, you know, sometimes you have to fire somebody, which I've had to do, because of their Internet practices, you know? Oh, so, absolutely. And, and, you know, there, there's all these great technologies out there 
uh, that, you know, they can monitor productivity and they can kind of monitor what workers are doing and where they are and you can track them and you can, you know, have a global positioning system or an RFID chip attached to whatever they are. So you always know where your workforce is. And I'm not saying that companies shouldn't do that, but I think you really need to think those issues through because, you know, every time you, you know, every time you, you kind of tighten down the screws and, 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 and track people and make them feel like they're, you know, kind of more like inanimate objects, uh, you, yeah. you lose something. And right. You, you kind of create an environment where people lose the willingness or desire to think for themselves. Yeah, like carrying, having an RFID on your badge and then they know how long you're in the bathroom or, right. you know. I, in fact, I don't know if you know this, but in California, the badges that the assemblymen and the senators wear have RFIDs in them. And the senators and assemblymen didn't know this. And so when they went in to vote or came out from voting, uh, every time they'd go in the room, they it was they there were RFID readers in the doors, so they didn't even know that they were being tracked. Um, wow! So, so that kind of led to the legislation that was introduced by Joe Simidian that that is to have certain guidelines with regard to RFIDs. We'll see what happens this year. It's going to be introduced again uh, in this uh, legislature. But yeah, I mean there are huge issues for privacy in business. Well, let's kind of switch gears. I, before I forget, I want to tell anybody who's listening or just, just tuned in that we are talking to a terrific privacy expert and a friend, Alan Chappelle, from New York City. And he is the um, – are you president of uh, Chappelle & Associates? Is that what we call you, president? I, yeah, I call myself president. I figured that in a couple of years I'll be able to give myself that big promotion to CEO. CEO. Okay. Well, you are the founder of Chappelle & Associates, and yes. he advises companies and others, and he is a fellow at the Poneman Institute doing research. So let's, let's talk a little bit about behavioral marketing. What the heck is behavioral marketing? Well, that's a great question, and, and uh, some people call it behavioral marketing, some call it behavioral targeting, or maybe just targeting, and uh, it, it, it's basically uh, the use of information to deliver more relevant advertising. So uh, let, let me put this in a couple different contexts for you. You know, if you are online... Uh, and you're visiting the sports section of your favorite website, and then you're visiting the travel section of your favorite website, and you're, then you're visiting, uh, you know, another section. Uh, a behavioral marketing company will take note of the sites that you're visiting, and they will use that information to build a profile on you, and they will then use that information, uh, hopefully, to serve you a, an ad that they believe, based upon that profile, that will be of interest to you. It's like Amazon. Every time I go to Amazon, they go, oh, hi, Mari. Uh, these are the books you've ordered before. These are the books we think you're going to like. These are the books you're probably going to want to buy. Is that what you mean? Well, it, it, it's similar to that because the idea, the idea, which is, you know, providing a warm, friendly, uh, relevant experience is the same. But really what Amazon does is more in the lines of what they call personalization, which is where they find out, you know, your name, your address, what you purchased before, and then they use that to customize your site experience. Uh, behavioral marketing is, in the online is, is a little bit different uh, in, in that, generally speaking, uh, and I, I'd say generally, I should say 99.9% you know, of the time, it's completely anonymous. So the company doing that targeting does not know who you are. And they use these, uh, what they call inter small Internet files called cookies. Uh -huh. And they use those in, in order to build that 
you know, build that profile. Now, generally speaking, it's completely, uh, you know, completely harmless to the user. Uh, you don't know what's happening unless you're reading a privacy policy from, you know, from a website. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the hope is that that delivers a more relevant ad to you. Uh, it's similar, though. It's, it's a similar thing is happening now in the cable industry, where there are companies that are uh, taking a look at what TV shows you're watching and kind of building a, you know, a profile based upon those, uh, those TV shows and then delivering ads, uh, cable ads, the commercials that, uh, that they think are more, would be more interest to you based upon the shows you've been viewing. So yeah. that if, if somebody was viewing, say, you know, The Simpsons and Gilmore Girls, they might see something very different than somebody who is looking at you know, Monday, Monday Night Football and Law and & Order. Right, right, or the History Channel and Discovery. Right, that's even a better <laughs> example. So, so it feels like there's some real privacy issues in this, too. I mean, was somebody's profiling me? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I think that th- there, are, there are some issues there. And, and, and the real issue that, and that, that most people are really still struggling with is how do you effectively communicate to people that this is going on? And, you know, the, the, the tried and true method has been to put that information into uh, one or more website privacy policies. Or in the case of cable, uh, you know, I think they've got it somewhere buried in the, you know, the cable service agreement, although I'm not really sure. Right. Um, the problem is, yeah. is that, is that uh, uh, you know, some people might argue that that is not a, you know, that's not a clear and upfront enough place to divulge that type of activity. Uh-huh. But the challenge is, is then, okay, well, if you're not going to put it in a website privacy policy, where do you put it? Right. You know, do you deliver a pop-up that tells you that? Well, consumers don't like pop-ups. No, no, I don't And like many of them block them, so that's not really going to help you. And so this is a challenge, and it's still something that's being worked on. Um, I, I think that the, the key message, though, is that, I can, well, I can certainly understand somebody, uh, somebody's gut feeling, which says, boy, I don't want to be tracked where I, you know, where I go online. Um, as a practical matter, um, it, it, it really isn't harmful to anybody. And number two, you can, you know, if, if you're one of those people, and that this number seems to be increasing, uh, if you're one of those people that deletes cookies on a regular basis, then, uh, you know, then this type of targeting, uh, behavioral marketing really can't, you know, as a practical matter, ha- happen for you. Let's talk a little bit about cookies then. Um, you know, I, I delete the cookies of the companies that I don't do business with. Okay, so like American Express, I go there all the time. So I don't want to delete that cookie or share it in points, you know. I don't delete that cookie. So what, what, what about um, the controversy over these online cookies? I mean, should we be deleting those that we um, do business with too? Uh, should we not be deleting those? Well, it's a challenge. I think we're, we're in kind of a, we're in a really interesting point, and I think 2006 is where a lot of these issues are really going to come to a head. Now, you as a consumer have to decide whether or not you want to delete cookies. But I would advise, uh, and, and as a one-off situation, it's not that big a deal. But if, if everybody starts deleting their cookies, uh, then it becomes much more difficult to have the same Internet that we currently have. Um, you know, one of the reasons you're able to go to websites and see content essentially for free, you know, with the exception of a couple of big-time sites such as, you know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, generally speaking, you go around the Internet 
Right. And you can read just about anything you want, and it's free. Right. Well, what's paying for that free content is advertising. Uh-huh. Now, uh, no, they can still operate ads without cookies. Right. But what they can't do uh, nearly as well is get a sense for who's viewing those ads. And so when you don't have a sense of who's viewing those ads, they, what they call the, the, the cost per thousand for the ads goes down significantly. Uh-huh. So if everybody started deleting their cookies, the value of online ads or the amount that a publisher would be able to charge for those ads eventually would go down very, very significantly and almost to the point where it would become very difficult for them to, uh, you know, to continue in business. So then what do we do? Do, you know, do we start charging you know, for content? And I, know, I know Larry had had a great survey about a year ago you know, where, where we, he, he went out and asked consumers whether or not they wanted to, you know, to pay for their favorite website. You know, and almost to a person, they said absolutely not. Yeah, right. I mean, so, that's the great thing about the Internet is you can go and surf and learn so much. And, you know, we can go to your website and read your stories and your, your articles, and we can go to someone else's and learn. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful encyclopedia that we get for free. So, obviously, we, we do want that. Right. And, you know, that, that's really, you know, you, you kind of hit on a very key issue here, Mari, because, you know, you and I have both used the word free. And, and it really isn't free, uh, in the same way that regular television isn't really free. Right, right. You know, you, it, it, it's, it's, there's a deal there. You, you get to see your favorite programs on, you know, Home and Garden or Lifetime or, 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 or whatever because you've agreed to see advertising. Right. But, but that's pretty transparent. You know what I mean? I mean, if, if you T-bowl it, you don't have to watch the commercials. But basically, otherwise, they can get to you. But if something's kind of you know, hidden, you know, where they're doing it just by you clicking, um, is that really transparent? I think that's the issue, isn't it? Well, that, that's, that's certainly part of the issue. And, and you know, I think that uh, online marketers and privacy professionals are, are, are really struggling to find ways in order to make that process a little bit more transparent in, in a way that also, you know, consumers can live with because, it, you, know, you know, certain people want to know more. Right. And that certain people want that transparency, and some people really don't. Right. So let me ask you a question because I'm not so I don't I'm not real savvy about online advertising. But when when I go, let's say to um, Amazon, and I see all these ads on the side, you know, or or I go to uh, a website and I see different ads on the, on the outside columns, um, and and then if I click on that, is is that how they they av- they get paid? By my clicks, isn't that right, or am I wrong? No, I mean you know that that it depends on the type of ad. Okay. Um, because there are some people, you know, there are some advertisers who want you to click, who want you to click onto their ad uh, because they either want you to you know go play their game or download their software or go to their site and purchase something. But then there are other ad, uh, advertisers who are really more interested in branding. You know, say uh, you know an automotive uh, manufacturer or a, you know, a beverage company. Uh-huh. You know, unlikely that you're going to keep clicking and, and you're going to you know, purchase either of those online, although you can certainly click and get more information. But so basically they're clicks, just trying to tell are it, yeah. a metric that the advertisers use, and some of them weigh it a lot more than others because some of them expect consumers to be clicking while others don't. But, but what they call is uh, views, page views. Uh-huh. 
And for, for a lot of advertisers, increasingly, that's become a very, very strong metric as well. And it's difficult to know who's viewing your ads uh, unless you have some device that enables you to know that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, cookies is certainly one and, and certainly one of the more prevalent methods for, uh, for doing that. And, and one that is, you know, uh, it, it, it certainly could be more transparent, but on the other hand, it's also not particularly invasive. Right. So, so the cookies, they just recognize the machine, right? Is that what it is? They just, they put their, I mean, they put their cookie on my machine, and then when, when I go back to that website, it recognizes me. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's computer has a, uh, you know, a code or a machine code. Right. And, and they're able to, and, and there's also a thing called an IP address, which is linked right. towards uh, however you access the Internet. And they put a, a couple of those different codes together, and that kind of gives you a, uh, a, unique identifier. However, that, that, as a practical matter, that unique identifier is difficult, if not completely impossible, to track to one uh, person in particular. Right, because they don't know how many people are using that computer at my house or my office or who they are. Right, right. Right. So what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that if we enable, if we allow cookies to come in, that that's really what's making uh, the, um, the Internet so we can use it without paying per site. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now, it, it's an interesting thing. Now, if, if 20 or 30 percent of consumers are deleting their cookies, it's a problem. If 90 percent of them are deleting their cookies, uh, you start to tear down the entire system. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so uh, what, what's become increasingly concerning to a lot of people in the online marketing world is that you know, con- is that consumers are increasingly starting to delete those cookies. Right, right. And some of that has to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the fear of being tracked. Right. And some of that has to do with increased, I think, consumer savviness about, you know, how to functionally delete cookies. And I right. think some of it has to do with what they call anti-spyware or software vendors. Right. So why don't you explain um, exactly what spyware is? Because some people think that spyware is only fraudsters. And that's not really the case. No, it, 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 it's very interesting. Um, you know, spyware is one of those definitions that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people and is somewhat subjective. It's almost like what is spam. Right. You know, and spam is, to many people, is just an email they don't want right that second. Right. So, you know, I, I, I tend to define spyware as a piece of software that was downloaded where you didn't understand the essence of, what you were, of the bargain that you were downloading. And so, and that that can take itself into a lot of different forms. You know, uh, on the more egregious examples, it could be a piece of software that downloaded without you even knowing it downloaded. Right. And that's probably the classical, if you want to call it that, definition of spyware. Uh, But it can also be, you know, downloading a piece of software where you think you're getting a really cool screensaver, but there's another program that's attached to it and you didn't know it was attached to it uh, that is delivering pop-up ads to you. Right. Right. Or, or that is uh, doing what they call keystroke logging, which is something that can, you know, that can monitor uh, what you're typing into your computer. Right, and those those can be bad guys who are trying to find out passwords and et cetera. So spy- oh, absolutely. Yeah. So spyware that some people, you know, we've talked about spyware on the show before about with regard to identity theft and and people who are doing uh, bad things. But there's also companies that do spyware, right? I mean, that's basically one of the issues that we've had, at least in the state of California, in terms of legislation. There are there are companies that have um, marketing that they do spyware, right? 
Yeah, there, there are companies that download pieces of software on a consumer debt, consumers' computers uh, in a way that, that what they call a reasonable consumer doesn't fully understand what they're getting. Right. And there are companies that uh, historically you know, have built pretty significant businesses uh, uh, using that model. And uh, I, I've actually was, was fortunate enough to be part of an industry-wide uh, program uh, to address a lot of these issues. And it, the program was uh, started by the folks at Trustee. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're, they're am, probably best known for web seal programs. Right. But you, explain to my audience. I know what trustee is. Fran was at our at our assignment. <laughs> yeah. But would you explain to my audience so that they know what it is and they can look for that seal? Sure. Well, well trustee is, is is best known as a website seal program. Although they they at this point probably have a half dozen or so uh, other types of programs. Uh, but but. You know, I think th- their goal is to, to help industry self-regulate and help, differ- help set standards to differentiate good players from bad players. So in the context of a web seal, you know, trustee has got a, a set of standards for you know, what types of behaviors are acceptable for a website and what aren't. And I think more importantly is you know, what types of behaviors need to be disclosed in a website privacy policy. So it, 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 it kind of has a dual purpose because the, the purpose for the, for the online business community is let's set up a self-regulatory program so that the government doesn't come in and try to do it for us. So let's set up rules of the game. And here's, here's you know, how we need to communicate this kind of important information to consumers. Now, it also is a, uh, generally speaking, their, their web seal program is a uh, consumer-facing program in that a consumer will see the trustee seal and they will feel better about this site's privacy practices because they know that a third independent third party is evaluating those privacy practices. Right. And so, um, yeah, so, so trustee, I think they've been around for about 10 years, and uh, I, I had the good fortune to work with them on this, uh, what they call it, the Trusted Downloads Program. Uh, this, this actually, the, 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 the Trusted Downloads Program is actually not going to be a consumer-facing seal, at least for the immediate future. And really what they're focusing on right now uh, are the you know what are the best practice standards around you know downloadable software? Right. So, and, and so really how, the key thing, Mari, and I'm sorry, yeah. I don't keep, okay. keep interrupting. No, that's all right. But the key thing is, you know, what type of functionalities in software are so important to consumers that they need to be what they call unavoidable? That if you're going to download this software, you've got to have these five key points right in your face. And then what are things that are, while important, but maybe not quite as important, it can be put into what they call an end-user license agreement or a privacy policy. So can you give us some of those? Like I know, you know, I'm always afraid to download software, and, and my computer consultant is always yelling at me, you know, don't download something that you're not absolutely 100% sure call me first, you know. Right. <laughs> so uh, what are some of the key components to look for when we are downloading software? that we think is going to be helpful to us. Have you guys put together some of those points? Well, yeah, they, they have. I mean, there are certain kind of functionalities that, you know, for, for companies who want to enter the program, and by the way, the program has not begun. They've, they've started, they, they've put together the standards, and the program is going to launch, you know, in the next couple of months. And I would definitely encourage you to have Fran or somebody from Trustee okay. uh, on the program because, boy, they, they – uh, That's trustee.org. Trustee.org. Yeah, T-R-U-S-T-E dot O-R-G. Yeah, I am. I'm going to have her on, as a matter of fact. But let's get back to the spyware issue then. Um, So so what can we do to protect ourselves from spyware then? What what is your suggestion? Well, I think think my suggestion is to to 
you know, to kind of remember that old maxim that maybe your mom or your grandmother told you where, you know, nothing in life is necessarily free and that if it looks to be too good a deal, you know, too good to be true, then, right. then perhaps it is. Right. And, and while, you know, while I, I think I publicly criticize companies who download, you know, pieces of software without providing notice and consent, I, I, I do think that, that consumers need to bear at least some of the burden there you know, to, to at least pay attention to what they're downloading. So that becomes a little bit difficult if, you know, I've got an eight-year-old daughter and I, I watch her like a hawk when she's on my computer, um, my, my home computer. Right. Um, and it becomes a little more difficult when she's 12 or 13 and, you know, you, you don't, she doesn't want you standing over her shoulder. Um, but, but I think even, even adults, I think, just need to be very wary of, of, of where they are. And a little bit of healthy fear and skepticism is never a bad thing. Right. And, you know, uh, you know I have a daughter in college and, and – uh, son who graduated from graduate school and you know even at their age I have to get all upset because you know college students just they trust everything and they're putting up the MySpace and they're putting everything and you know possible up there that they shouldn't be putting up there they'll never run for office I'm sure but um you know I mean the reality is is that they aren't careful and most people to be honest with you unless they're savvy like you know you and and me now I mean we're careful, and people kind of look at me sometimes and saying, God, you're paranoid, you know? So what if we put up this MySpace? I mean, even adults put up MySpace. And right. they, you know, you, you, you know, we're going to talk a little bit in a minute about um, even online dating. I mean, look at those are adults that do that. I, I agree, and I think, you know, and, and I, I certainly don't mean to, to uh, make it sound like consumers need to bear the brunt of this, but I'm just saying they need to, be, need to go in with an open eye. And they need to, you know, the number of people I've talked to over the years who said two things, uh, almost in succession. They say, number one, I don't know how I got this horrible spyware on my computer. Right. And then they'll say the next breath, hey, do you want to see this new... <laughs> <laughs> you want to see this new uh, tune that I downloaded from this illegal site. Right, right. And so, you know, again, you know, uh, it, it, it's a no little bit it's a, yeah. it's, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit of a challenge. Right, right. I mean, and it's part of consumer education. And, and unfortunately, you know, with the tremendous uh, influx of all these of the great technology that's out there. I mean, I just joined the X generation, and I have an iPod, and you know, I've down, I've actually learned to put all my CDs, and my daughter downloaded all this music for me that was legal, and you know, I pay for it on iTunes and all this good stuff. Great, I mean, it? It, it's great, but you know what? It is overwhelming. Yeah, it is. I mean, to learn how to use my 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 new all my new technology, and and now that we're podcasting these shows, I had to learn to. I went to a podcasting convention, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like this old head is trying to learn all these new things, and I think, you know, even the elderly people that call me that become victims of identity theft, and and the young people, they they don't have a clue on all the things that they're doing that is exposing them to all sorts of privacy invasions. And I think you're right. I mean, they have to take some responsibility, but it's thank God that we have people like you talking on the show to help educate them. Let's well, ha- happy, to, happy to help there because I, I do recognize that uh, um, if you're not paying attention to this type of thing every day, it's, 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 there's a lot out there. There really is. You know, I, I, you and I had talked about one of the questions that we, you, you, we were going to talk about, which was the online dating service. And I wanted to tell you the quick story of this this case that I just took care of, this poor woman who had gone online, and she had on an online dating service, a matchmaking service, 
Um, she met this guy. She had dated him. And her family loved him. He was absolutely charming, adorable, everything. She had been divorced for like 12 years and decided, this is it. I'm going to marry this guy. She marries him. He um, appropriates all her money. She finds out uh, he commits suicide, and she is left with all this debt. Okay. Oh, um, my goodness. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just had to deal with this with her. I mean, literally, we finished this case to help her to get her life back because she was married, and that's community property. So we had to deal with all this fraud that she didn't know that he was doing. So when you talk about online dating, and there is a, you, you, there are some uh, online dating services which conduct background checks. So what do you think about that? It's, it's, it's a real interesting thing. And, and um, you know, I, I know that when you come on to a show like this, Mara, you're supposed to have a, you know, a, a quick opinion on things. No, and no, I, no. I'm going to be honest. I'm still <laughs> thinking this, this one over a little bit. So let me first say that I, I, my heart goes out to, uh, to, to the, the poor woman that you were working with because that's just, uh, boy, you never want to, to wish that on anybody. Right. Um, but l- let me ask you a question. Um, is it more likely that that happens – that situation happens in an on- to somebody you meet online, or is it more likely that it happens to somebody you happen to meet at a church social? Well, you know, I, I do have a couple attorney friends of mine who've actually gotten married to people that they've met online, and it's wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying that, that it's all bad, but what I recommend, not some, you know, it's fine if the online dating service does a background check, but I think I would do it myself. I tell people, do your own background check on somebody that you meet on the Internet. You know, take it very slowly. Meet them, meet their family. Um, this woman didn't really meet all of the family, only the 80-year-old uh, mother. And uh, really take your time because, it, you know, in this instant age of instant information, instant gratification, you know, instant marriages, you know. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Um, that, that as one who deals with people who are victims of fraud, I tell people, you know what, if you're going to do online dating, then really take your time and really do your research. And you can go online and you can do background checks on the person that you're dating. And so rather than maybe the uh, dating service doing it and charging you a fortune, I mean, that's one option. Or if, if you do it yourself. Uh, there are many information brokers out there that you can do your own for. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think I have no problem with somebody doing their own backup tra- uh, background checks and, and, frankly, doing their own due diligence whenever you want to allow somebody into your life. But that goes with people you meet online and people that you happen to meet at the store and people who are, you know, that you've known or school friends. You, you just have to be careful. And, and my, my concern about online background checks is that, you know, the firstly, is, is how clear is it to somebody who's signing up there that they're going to have a background check on them? You know, we, 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 you and I both just talked about how some people are concerned about having a cookie dropped on to their desktop. Right. Well, this is a background check. This is, some, you know, this is a whole different thing. Um, and, and I'm also would make the slippery slope argument, whereas if, you know, we're now, you know, this particular company is actually advocating uh, a law that would require online dating sites to, to, you know, disclose whether or not they perform background checks because at this point I think they're the only ones that do that. Right. So I, I, I have a little bit of a, of, a, of a privacy concern around that because I think, you know, the more of these types of background checks that you start, uh, you know, uh, that, that we start conducting, I think the, the, 
you know, um, at some point in my life, I want to be able to unplug from the grid a little bit. And maybe I'm being unrealistic with that. But I think my larger issue with it is from a security standpoint. Firstly, uh, I, I'm not entirely convinced that a background check, a cursory background check, is going to make anybody more secure. Right. Because if I'm uh, somebody who's a, an evildoer out there, I'm probably going to lie about my name or my birth date so that a background check is going to be pretty ineffective. Um, and so you're saying you're doing background checks, and my concern is that for some people that may, uh, that may lull them into a sense where they will use the, a company background check as a substitute for their own due diligence and good judgment. Right. And that's where I get a little bit concerned. You know, the world is a dangerous place, and and really bad things happen. And I I think that uh, the more uh, that we can can get consumers to understand that that they need to take some matters here into their own hands, and that it can't all be, they cannot be protected from everything. I just think it's a good thing, and anything that kind of runs contrary to that, I'm I'm a little concerned with. Yeah, you know, and then the other side of the issue, and then this gets back to kind of like what, you know, helping companies and what we advise companies, and we advise companies to do background checks on people that are going to have uh, access to sensitive information or access to people in their homes. And the the other side of the issue for the person who's who's being checked up upon is that we believe that everyone who has a background check performed be able to get a copy of it because I have a guy right now I'm helping him. In fact, today, today, I've been dealing with New York City, I mean, uh, Suffolk County, New York, and the uh, DA and the Attorney General because I have a guy from Florida who's a victim of criminal identity theft who can't get a job because his background check is showing a conviction for various felonies that he did not commit. <laughs> right. And I am going through hell and high water to try and correct those records and writing affidavits for the, um, you know, the Superior Court in County of Suffolk. <laughs> and believe yeah. me, I can tell you, so I, I think if, this gets back to the issue of transparency. If you're going to do a background check as an employer, you have a duty to provide a copy of that background check to that person because if there's errors in it, they should have a right to, to fix it. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and it's, it's so concerning. Now, you are a, extremely bright, and you're well-educated, and, boy, you're, you're tenacious as all heck, uh, and you're having challenges finding transparency in these issues. And if, you know, contrast that with, you know, somebody who, you know, maybe had, you know, spent a couple of years in high school and is, you know, just not as well off, how in the world are they going to find this stuff out? And even if they are able to find it out, how are they going to be able to fix it? And, and you know what? This guy from Florida, he, he has had this, he's been trying to get a job since 1991 in, the, in his field of IT. We actually interviewed him. If you want to listen to the interview, Ray Lorenzo, we interviewed him um, on the show, and it's on our website, as a matter of fact. You can hear the interview with this guy. And I have been dealing with this for months and months, and we're going to go before the judge in two weeks. And it is... Yeah, if if I, who who know this stuff, am having a problem, what is everyone else going to do? Now, if he would have gotten a background check years ago, he, if he got a copy of the background check that he authorized, then that would have been entirely different for him now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, I, I definitely will listen to that interview. And if there's some way, if it's a, you said it was in Suffolk County, if there's some way that I can help with that, please. Well, I'll um, tell you, when we're done with this, I, you may want to help me get a lawyer to represent him when the, when the information broker starts selling the wrong information because they haven't updated their files. That's going to be the fun part. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's going to be really uh, interesting. But um, what do you... I wanted to ask you what you thought about uh, being in, in New York now. Uh, after the London bombings, I, I have seen in, in the news that now uh, in New York City, they're, they're randomly searching bags in the, in the subway. Um, I mean, obviously, in some, in some ways it looks good. In some ways it doesn't. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, it's a really neat publicity stunt. Yeah. Um, it, because it makes it look like you're doing something to address a very, very important issue that, frankly, I don't know that anybody can adequately address. The New York City subway system is, uh, boy, I can't even tell you how many miles it is, but, but l- l- just a couple of things. And I've been on it. It's great. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, but I, I do not, I cannot envision a scenario where they could, compl- they could possibly secure that. Right. So what they're doing is they're saying, and I, I, actually I don't think they're doing this anymore. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but they were randomly, and we could get to the definition of randomly because um, I, I have my own theories on exactly who they were stopping. But right, right. they were randomly stopping people as they were getting going into the subway and searching their bags. Right. Now, a couple things about this. The first is, boy, that's extremely intrusive. And you can say that the times we live in justify that level of intrusiveness. I'm not sh- entirely sure I w- would agree with that. But I almost don't even have to go to that, the, the privacy argument, because my argument is, what possible good is this going to do? Yeah. And let me give you a scenario, Mari. You walk into the subway, and they ask you if they to go through your bag. And you know what? Just for whatever reason, you decide that you don't want the New York Police Department to search your bag. And so what do you do? Well, you go outside of the subway. Now, most subway stations have a minimum of three or four entrances. Some of them have something like 16 entrances. Right. So if you walk out of one of the entrances, you can literally go across the street and walk back into another entrance. And it's hard to believe that the police would be able to spot you again. Right, right. So, so it's worth it's it. hard to see how that type of program would be particularly effective. I suppose there would be some deterrent effect, but... Um, boy, it's, it's a heck of a lot of intrusiveness and maybe even more importantly, a heck of a lot of cost in terms of salaries of police per, uh, personnel uh, in order to do this. And I, I just, it kind of escapes me, but I guess it is a, you know, it's one of those things where an administration feels like they have to do something. Right, right. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of that, it probably no small coincidence that was, uh, you know, right around election time. Right. Now we've got about one or 30 seconds left that I can get something from you, and we, we, we're going to have to have you on again, Alan, because we could talk forever. But tell me, if you, if you can, what are, are your suggestions for the people listening, whether they're business people or students or whomever is listening? What is your suggestion for being, becoming more privacy savvy and protecting their privacy in, in the year 2006? Well, I think the first thing is, is that you have to understand your environment. You've got to really be paying attention to, you know, where you are. I mean, in the same way that, that your mom always told you, don't go down that shady street at 2 a.m. because something bad might happen to you, you know, you, you might not want to go down that, you know, onto that site that you don't know anything about. 
right. uh, and, and start downloading things or start providing your personal information to them unless you understand who those people are. Right, right. And so there, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of that. You know, my, my advice to businesses is probably uh, very similar, which is create an environment of transparency so that people at your site or downloading your software or using your product know who you are, understand what the essence of the bargain is, um, and then deliver on that. Yep. And that, that in essence, is, is probably the first three things that I tell every client I've worked with. Right. Well, we want everybody to visit your website at uh, CHAP. Uh, why don't you give it? In- sure. It's, it's www.chapellassociates.com. Uh, it's Alan Chappelle. No, not Dave Chappelle. I, <laughs> I hear that a lot. I'm his paler and funnier cousin. That's what I like to say. <laughs> Yes, and you know what? We have linked your website to our website, so they can go to KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy, and they can see your cute picture because you're a handsome-looking guy. They can see your bio, and they can link your website at chappelleassociates.com. And they can see you, and you will have to come back, all right? Because I, I, we have I so much it to say. It's been a lot of fun, Mari. Okay, honey, take care. And Thanks. We've been you've been listening to Alan Chappelle, who is the president of Chappelle and Associates, a privacy expert. And next, you're you got to stay tuned next because you're going to have some great music with Neapolitan Radio with Jessica and Rena. And then who it is? Oh. <laughs> Did I mess up? Okay, well, tell me, Lloyd. Oh, that's right, Jezebine and and Rena. And also, I want you to make sure that you go to visit our website at KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy, and then you can see all of our previous guests, listen to their interviews, podcast them. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Lloyd, for being such a great engineer. And you've been listening to Privacy Piracy. Stay tuned next Wednesday at 5 p.m. And we're going to have Robert Brennan, an attorney, to talk about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and how to protect your credit and get your life back together. Thank you. Privacy Piracy, KUCI.org. Expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.